You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. I've always been in, intrigued, greatly intrigued, by the stories of people coming to know the Lord and to have salvation because of dreams. You heard some of this that's going on now in Iran? In Pakistan, in uh, Syria, people coming to faith in Jesus Christ because they go to sleep at night and they have a dream of Jesus coming to them and presenting life to them and they repent and they believe and they're saved. And I'm thinking, my gosh, how wonderful is it that you have stories like this now for years and years this is going on. And I find myself thinking, man, he just doesn't need any of us. He, like, if he wants to save somebody, he's going to save them. Nothing will stop him. His arm is not too short to save anyone at any time. And you have evidence of that. You hear the stories of that. But how intriguing that he actually does use us sometimes to be the vessel of grace that he uses in the life of somebody. Like, what a gift, what an honor. I think most of us can look back and point to a person that you would say, this person was so deeply used in my life to show me the goodness and the kindness of God, to teach me about God. And someday I I expect and believe that you will meet Zelma Banks. And Zelma Banks is my maternal grandmother. And she is probably the person who most consistently prayed for me and most consistently taught me about God before I was a Christian. And she uh, was such a wonderful woman of God that I treasure her. She was a vessel of grace in my life. It's as if God poured into her His love and kindness and it brimmed out of her and was poured out on me and my brother and sister, on my mom, on so many of us in our family, all of us now walking with the Lord, or in many cases, having graduated into heaven. This passage that we're looking at today speaks about vessels of grace. Vessels of grace. And it's my hope and my intention that you would see yourself in brand new lenses through brand new lenses today that God would want to use you is such a peculiar honor and such a peculiar gift. Listen to these words that Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay and some for honorable use and some for dishonorable therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable he will be a vessel for honorable use that is set apart as holy a vessel that is useful to the master of the house a vessel that is ready for every good work what an incredible thing paul typically when you listen to how he writes his letters, whether it be to the Ephesians or to the Romans, it has a different flavor than this. It's very linear and very logical. And here Paul is using vivid imagery. He's doing this maybe because he understands 
who Timothy is and how to relate this truth to him. But what he has done is he's just taken a parable. He's used a visual image and he's taken something that Timothy knows and he set it right next to the kingdom of God and said, this is what it's like in a large house. You've seen these rich people's houses. You've been in them, Timothy, and so have I. And you know that there are in those big houses many vessels, and some of them are beautiful, and they're gold, and they're silver, and then others are more or less just common, everyday usage plates. What, what, is, what is Timothy doing as he reads this the first time? Though he's sitting somewhere in Ephesus, he's gone back to a time and place where he was with Paul and he was in John Mark's house, or John Mark's mother's house, and he was remembering, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember those beautiful plates they sat in front of us. And I remember seeing the kids eating over whatever a card table was of that day, and they had the paper plates or they had the plastic ones, right? It's, it's something that engages our imagination. And if I were to say to you that it is your task to go into Adam's house, Adam Fuhrer's house, and within five minutes I want you to come out with a fancy plate and a common plate. And if you've never been in his house, I'll bet within five minutes you'd come out holding two things. You'd find one of them pretty quick, and the other one might take a little more time to find, but you'd find both. You could do the same thing in my house, even if you've never been there. And in fact, I'll bet if we walked, uh, if we went to some fancy house down on a lake in Austin, and I said, within five minutes, I want you to come out with the fancy one and the common one, you could do it. You'd get in there and you'd look through the kitchen and you would find what you found to be and what you qualified to be. This is probably used every single day, but not this one. This one, it's, it's obvious, is a very unique one, only used on rare occasions. Again, if you, if you did come to my house, you'd find these beautiful St. Petersburg china plates that my mom brought back, and they are only used for tea parties between my wife and the Ellis girls. That's kind of how it works, you know? And it's not even tea. It's like hot chocolate or something like that. But you have this sense that you could kind of crush any of those and it wouldn't be that difficult. So here's the question. Did you know that this room is filled with plates, with bowls, with cups? In God's eyes, the church is a great house. And in the church, local and universal, these vessels that Paul uses this image over and over again. You'll see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he describes this as vessels or jars of clay that hold treasures inside. Romans chapter 9, vessels that the, the potter has created. It's a picture that he uses over and over again. And if God were looking into this building right now, scanning over it and saying, here in about six weeks or six months, I'm going to do something in Georgetown, Texas that is part of a, a global thing that I'm doing in the world right now. And I am looking for vessels of honor that I could pull out and say, this one is perfect. Would it interest you? Would you... Maybe in some way kind of be going, oh my, 
I'm interested. I'd kind of like to be a part of that. I know I would. I know that I, if, if the Lord's eyes are scanning the world, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says this, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may show Himself strong to the one whose heart is undivided, the one whose heart is blameless before Him. I remember as a new Christian reading that, it's a really, in, in its context, it's a story of a king named Asa, and Asa is a pre-exile king, and he is facing adversity. And if he had trusted the Lord rather than trying to buy off his adversaries, if he had trusted the Lord, the prophet tells him, you would have been fully supported by God if you had trusted Him. And Asa gets mad at this and takes this prophet and puts him in stocks and chains. How dare you tell me the truth, right? But I remember reading that and thinking, I wonder, Lord... Do your eyes still scan the world? Like, almost like a, like a great spotlight going across. Do your eyes still roam throughout the earth to and fro, searching for someone whose heart is truly yours, that you may strongly support, that you may show them who you are? Because if they do, I'm confident of this. If you scan past my heart, I know that I was not full-hearted. I know that part of my heart wanted for the things of God and another part of it wanted for the things of the world. And I knew that was me. And it grieved me to think that the Lord had scanned over a room like this that I was sitting in and I knew that He would find a half-hearted man. And I just prayed, will you come back? I, I, I want you to come back. And it, I want you to fix my heart. I mean, it's not about being saved. I know you've saved me. It's that I want to be your man on this earth. I, and I would have told you at that point, I wasn't interested in ministry at all. Because ministry somehow meant something I just didn't want. I just wanted to be His servant. I wanted to, be, I wanted to know Him in that way. Paul says, Timothy... In a large house, you know it's true. There are vessels like this that are gilded vessels. They're beautiful. And you know that there's some over here. And I want you to know this. If anyone, anyone cleanses themselves, they will be set apart by the Master. They will become useful as a vessel of honor, ready for every good work. So I don't know how that greets you this morning, but I hope what you're feeling is this. I want to know exactly what he means by this. If anyone cleanses themselves, he'll become. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your gifting is. You don't have to be a speaking gift. You don't have to have any forward gifts. You can be, and God wants you to be, a vessel of honor that has been set apart by the Master that is useful for every good work. And God has designed good works for us. Now, so we've got to wrestle through and fight through that it just said, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, what am I going to do with that? I thought Jesus did that at the cross. I thought that was done and that was solved, that my sin had been all of them forgiven at the cross. Is that not true? Is that not what we believe? Of course that's what we believe. And yet, 
though you have been positionally sanctified. The word sanctified means to set apart. To set apart. You know, this is the stuff that you take and you don't use every day. You set it apart over here. You have been positionally placed in Christ, sin forgiven, and yet you are being progressively sanctified. Between now and the day that you see Him face to face, there is a progression of sanctification. That we grow in sanctification. That we continually look to our lives and the sin that is ongoing in our lives and we say, Father, reveal to me what is displeasing to You so that I might be a vessel of grace, that I might know You, and by knowing You, like Moses standing up on the mountain talking to God, you start to glow in the presence of God. Peter and James were untrained, uneducated men, and they marveled at them because they had been with Jesus. And so, here's the point I want you to hear. If it interests you at all, if you know that you're going to go to heaven, but you want more than just the ticket to ride, so to speak. I know that sounds terrible, but for some people, man, I just want to go to heaven. I'm not interested in giving away my life. Friends, can I just ask you to consider, you were made for something greater than just that you could be saved and go to heaven someday, but that you could know Him and serve Him and be a vessel that He pours Himself deeply and richly into so that you brim with the grace and the message and the person of Jesus Christ, that He might pour Himself out through you to others. If that interests you, it is my hope and my belief and my conviction that the Lord is about to do something wonderful in the world. We're already seeing some of these things. Do you want Him to pass right by and you get to read about it? Or do you want to be in the mix of that story? Because I so want that for me, for you. Therefore, anyone who cleanses himself. So how do I do that? What do I do? Well, I can tell you this. That Romans chapter 139, verse 23 and 24 says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Invitation in prayer that God would search you. That God would know you. That God would reveal to you things that displease Him in your life. Some of them are going to be very obvious. Some of them are going to be hidden. So here's the pattern of my walk with God over many years, is to go away and pull away from all things that are just like familiar, normal stuff. And I go somewhere, and it's called a prayer retreat, and it's built into the budget of this church. You should know about this since you're paying for it. <laughs> that I go away, and I spend a few days just with the Lord, resting, walking long walks, and doing business with God. God, I want You to reveal to me strategies that are at work against me right now to pull me away from You. I want You to reveal to me some things that maybe I've gotten okay with that You're not okay with. Attitudes, actions, 
friendships, anything like that. God, would you reveal that to me? Fear of man issues that I've been living with. Would you show me that? Would you show me where I'm not really trusting or believing you? Would you reveal that to me? And it's hard work, this repentance thing. And it's vital work. It's important that I do this. It's important that you learn to do this. That you slow everything down, get away with the Lord at least for a day, and say to Him, I need you to show me what you see. What does Psalm, 1, or Psalm 19 say? Verses 12 through 14. The psalmist says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Now, did you see the difference? Hidden faults, you don't even know they're there. I mean, a lot of your closest friends know, but you don't. They've seen them. They've heard them. They can identify them, but they're hidden to you. And there are sins that are evident only to God that no one else can see. Hidden faults, but also keep back your servant from what? Presumptuous sins. These are the ones, the boundary lines that you know you're crossing. You feel in the very moment you do it, you should not say that. You should not engage in that. You should not walk forward across that boundary line. The the Lord is saying to you, stop. That's a presumptuous sin. God, don't let them have dominion over me. This is the work of repentance. It's a serious work. And in the nation of Israel, Old Testament Israel, every year they celebrated two feasts right on top of one another. First the Passover and then unleavened bread. And for days and on the end, seven days, they would have to search their home for any tiny trace of this yeast that was in their house. They would scoop it out. It was a diligent search for anything small that could bloom into something big and it represented the sin. And it came after Passover. After you're saved, search out the sin that is in your life. Friends, I hope that you can see this. We all need to continue on saying, Lord, I want you to reveal to me the sin that I'm not aware of and the sin that I am aware of. I want you to free me from it because I want to be a vessel of grace. I want you to pull me off the shelf and say, you... I've designed this good work for you. And it doesn't matter if it's something on a stage somewhere. It doesn't matter if maybe it is. But it's the work that God designed for you. Now, I want you to know this. When I came to plant this church, I had a strong, strong conviction that God was going to plant a church in Georgetown whether I did it or not, whether I was the one that would come down. You'd be in this room either way is my feeling. God was going to plant Redeemer Georgetown by that name or by another name, by me coming to do it or by someone else, but He was going to do it. And I am so honored and so blessed that He said, I want you to leave everything familiar to you in Chicagoland. I want you to let go of it. I want you to walk into something you don't know Don't know anybody in Georgetown. Don't have a starting place, but I want you to trust me and I want you to do this. Gosh, what a gift. What an honor. See, you're going to exhaust yourself for something. You're going going to sleep sweet 
and satisfied if you let go of your life for the glory of Jesus Christ. Look inside and say to Him, I want to be a vessel of grace. I want you to show me where to repent. And He will, and you won't really like it at first. (laughs) But a pattern in your life, Christians, should be this, that you repent often and quickly. Often and quickly should be the words to describe your repentance. That all day long and all week long, and you're finding you're going, that, that wasn't good. That was sin. And it was personal. Lord, forgive me. Often and quickly. Don't kind of push that away and go, yeah, I'll kind of deal with that later on. I'll just, no, do it quick. Keep your, short, keep your accounts short with the Lord. Often and quickly repenting. You need grace, and so do I. You have grace, and so do I. It may or may not be known to you that a well-known worship leader in our tribe recently was fired from uh, a very large church. And it, every, time I, every time I hear about one of these, I have a similar response. He was fired for cause. There was good reason. And every time I hear these stories, because I've heard them now for years, I have a whirlwind of emotion. The first one is, wow. Wow, like really? And then anger seems to flood right in. Choice words I ought not say. I'm like, come on. And then the next thing is fear. And the fear comes from this. I know me. I know the worldliness of my heart. I know that I am prone to wander. I can feel that still. And so, if that's true for me, and if that's true for others, here's the truth about most of the time when someone blows up their life in that fantastic way, they've been doing it privately for years. Years and years. Private meditations that don't honor the Lord have just become familiar, unharmful things in their life, and that's just not true. It's just not true. And so we as Christians need the Lord, and we need to repent often, and we need to let the Lord in on every single private thing going on in your soul. We need His grace. Okay, well, how, how do we do it? Well, Keep watching. Let's keep looking here. He says, after showing the parable of the great house, he says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. I hope you could pick up on this. You know, you Bible scholars have picked up immediately on how this might look, that growing in grace includes both fleeing and pursuing. Did you catch that? If you're going to grow in grace, it's going to include both fleeing and pursuing. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness. So fleeing youthful passions... Flee the the desire to engage in these stupid debates. 
<laughs> Flee that. You want to win. You want to prove your point. You want to show that you're intelligent or articulate. You want to, you want to win that. And he says, flee from that. That's, that's foolishness. I have no doubt that this would include sexual sins of some kind, but I think it also goes broader than that. I think it includes that, certainly. Youthful passions would include that. But as for my life, I can tell you this, the desire to speak on a conference stage or to write books or be the man, these are youthful passions. You think that in them, you're going to feel something of affirmation and worth and value. You believe that because you haven't had it yet and felt the other side of the emptiness. That won't give you what Jesus has already given you. Affirmation from heaven above that He loves you, that He claims you, that He likes you. That is a mature believer's gift is to know the affirmation of God. But when you're young, you've got these youthful passions. You want something of that corner office in the big chair. You want to be included. And this is the funny thing. When I worked as a corporate chaplain, up on the 11th floor of this building that overlooked this golf course over Love Field, it was, it was just beautiful. I'm telling you, when somebody got fired in that place or, or they got moved on to somewhere, people within an hour were going in there to grab their chair. I mean their chair. Like their physical chair. It was like a grabbing of stuff. You're like, man, vultures. So that chair leans back more. So I don't know what it was, but like that's a good chair. There's a desire to be known and appreciated and wanted and respected and feared and, and have a better this and a better that. And, okay, listen. You need to flee that. One time when I was in California working with the Josh McDowell ministry, Campus Crusade, um, it was up in this mountain town called Julian, California. The air's kind of thin there. I didn't realize that. I went out for a run one day, and on this mountain road, all of the houses are set back about 100 yards from the road, and uh, I was out running, and I was thoroughly exhausted in that thin air. But somehow, when these two Doberman pinchers come running down this driveway to examine who was running by, I found new strength to flee. It was like something in me just kicked in and I knew it's time to go whether you're tired or not. You know why we don't flee youthful passions? So we don't think they'll hurt us at all. We're convinced it's just a golden doodle. All he wants is to be my friend. <laughs> there was no mistaking that if they had caught me, they would have chewed me like a bone. And I knew that. I don't know that I see sin that way. Youthful passions look to me like no big deal. But I promise you this, they're a big deal. They will get you. They will devour you. They will hurt you and everyone you love. And one of the greatest camouflages is they don't look that way at first. The marriage killers... I'm too busy. I don't have time. We don't date anymore. We don't invest in each other. Okay, just give that a little bit of time and watch it kill your marriage. Same thing with churches. Well, man, it's not a big deal, is it? I mean, the Word of God says that, but I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to offend any of them. Let's just, okay, that's a, that's a church killer. It looks like it's no big deal. Give it time. It will sprout into everything you're doing. 
He says, flee these things. But friends, hear this. It's not just flee those things. Pursue these things. Do you get that? Like most of your repentance will not just be gritting your teeth and saying, I ought not to. I should stop. No, stop. Yes, you should stop. Now start pursuing this. What do we pursue as Christians? Well, Paul makes it very clear here. Pursue faith. Pursue, pardon me, righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the, uh, the Lord with a pure heart. Pursue. Go after this. Go after. Go after righteousness. Let the Word of God sing out to you in the morning. Memorize a few verses that you can lay in your bed and rehearse. Let them speak to you. Let the voice of God speak to you. Let uh, not only that, but some time invested in prayer where you're pursuing the heart of God. Righteousness. Repenting of these things, but pursuing these things. The voice of other wonderful voices from the past through song that God would speak to you, that you would pursue righteousness. You know, when Monica and I met and we started hanging out, she knew exactly why I was calling and inviting her to stuff all the time. I'm sure she went, I wonder why he keeps calling me and asking me to go places. Because I'm pursuing you. I mean, this is intentional. She knew it. Time, sacrifice, energy, money. That's called pursuit of you. (laughs) Okay, Lord, show me how to pursue righteousness. Time, money, energy, sacrifice. Show me how to pursue righteousness. But not only that, this word faith, it probably should read faithfulness. Not just the faith, the Christian faith, but faithfulness. Pursue faithfulness. Organize your life in such a way that you are designing time and energy so that you can be faithful going forward, present, active, engaged, faithful. Pursue faith. Also pursue, pursue love. See, this is a beautiful one, that the Lord, as you pursue the things that are in the heart of God, that you pursue the heart of God, guess what happens? He starts to shape His affection in you. You'll start loving people that you didn't love before. You'll start loving things that you didn't love before. you start loving the church and the sound of worship. You'll love the sound of Jesus' name unless someone's taking it in vain and then you'll hate that. It would sound disgusting to you. And the, the, the love of God begins to shape the affections of your soul. Pursue love. I will find songs that just... Lift up the name of Jesus and you should begin to sing them. Poorly. Doesn't matter. Just sing them. Pursue them by turning off the noise over here. This is what the pursuit looks like. You get in your car and rather than just turning on the noise, you turn on worship or you start to pray. And you ask the Father that He would shape His affections in you. Pursue love. And then peace is a derivative. It just comes out of that. This sense of well-being that God's affirmation is clear. Peace is derivative of all these things. It's what will find you as you pursue the others. But get this. (laughs) Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I just can't say this strongly enough. 
you can't do this alone. You have to have a group of Christian friends. When you were saved, you were baptized into a body of believers. You're not meant to be a solo Christian who just thinks deep thoughts and tries really hard. You're meant to be in a community of believers calling on the name of the Lord together. Reaching out together, praying for each other, helping each other. No one really needs to struggle alone. You're choosing that. And let me explain why. If some of you are... And please hear this from a shepherd's heart. It's going to sound hard. I just want you to hear this. The reason why you're lukewarm and you haven't grown much as a Christian is because you have been separated from the body of Christ. By your own design and by Satan's design, you have kept your schedule in such a way that you don't have time to engage with the people of God in the life of the church. Something else shine brighter. Something else become a higher priority. And you began to feel the weight of that lukewarmness in your own life. Friends, do this with us. Now here's a very specific invitation Gospel community number five is about to start next month. I want you to sign up for that gospel community if you're not in one. I want you to scan a QR code and say, okay, we'll take the step forward. We'll be a part of one of these gospel communities. We'll get put on the spot to... Whatever we got, we're going to schedule around that and we're going to participate with some Christians. I want you to do that because I want you to experience the goodness of being a vessel of grace. It's so good. It's so encouraging. So you've got to do this in a group. It, it, it is how God has wired us. And look at this. It says, have nothing to do, verse 23, with ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And then an interesting way, it's like you're growing, you're, you're multiplying quarrels. You're, you're breeding them like chickens. You do know what's coming up, right, in the next 12 months, not even 12 months, in the political season that is coming our way. Lots of fights, lots of arguments. And, and, and I would just tell you, there are some places where that conversation is healthy and good. Probably online is not one of them. I mean, people just get ridiculous. Somehow, the typing and retyping sentences and taking jabs, it just somehow multiplies it. It breeds quarrels. It just breeds a big mess. It's so impersonal. Right? So have nothing to do with that because I think that is the within the church one of the expressions that Paul is trying to describe here. It's doing no good. Have nothing to do with it. He says, you know that they breed quarrels and look at this. There's something here that I can almost hear some who are similar to me. Like, well, what? great. Supposed to just fold my arms, huh? And pray and keep silent and hope it just dissipates. Hope it just goes away. No, friends. No. Men and women of God engage. They engage. Listen to this. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. 
patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. Listen, I, I, I'm wired in such a way that I want to debate. I want, I enjoy it sometimes, maybe in an unhealthy way. I, I like, I like the, the, the life of a debate, really. Honestly, I enjoy that. I like how thoughts move and how people articulate. And, um, and there is a way in which I think it is good and right and healthy that we would engage in the ideas of our time in a very vigorous and courageous way, but let the description of our interactions be characterized like this. The Lord's servant is not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. That, that if you engage, that after it's all over, what could be said of your engagement is... You know, it, it wasn't really a, an ugly fight. It was, he was kind to everyone. If you've known the Lord, if His grace has filled you as, as a vessel, kindness would be the way it would flow out of you. Able to teach, patient. So kindness and patience. You know, there is something that is, if you've seen it, it is super notable. And you won't see it often, but when you see it, you will make note of it in your mind. You know what it is? Meekness. Meekness. Jesus was described as meek. In Matthew chapter 11, I am gentle and lowly. You know what meekness is? I love how Jordan Peterson described it. Meekness could be described like this. Those who have swords and know how to use them, but don't. Now, I want you to get this. Meekness is those who have swords know how to use them, and don't. So picture it like this. Jesus is being spit on. Jesus is being slapped. He could in any given moment with the bag around His face where they're punching Him, and they said, prophesy who hit you. He could have done it. He could have told them where their parents lived and their friends lived, and He could have said, today you will die. He, he had all the power in the world to just boom, and He didn't. Now listen, I have seen meekness and marveled at it because I think one of the greatest expressions of meekness that I've seen in our generation is probably Tim Keller. So Tim Keller goes to Berkeley and he does a debate with the philosophy department and the student body at Berkeley. And you know, you know, if you don't know Tim Keller, he's, he's a pastor who recently went on and graduated. He's in heaven now. But he went to Berkeley to debate with the faculty and staff and the student body and the philosophy department. And you know that they were thinking to themselves, we are going to eat this poor man's lunch. And then his dessert and then his napkin. We're going to just swallow it all. And if you listen to him interact with them, I think they know within one or two minutes, oh no, he's so disarming with his kindness. And then after his kindness has already disarmed them, he's just smarter than most of them. He has the power 
to embarrass them, especially the professors, and he didn't do it. You should get on YouTube this week and listen to Tim Keller at University of Berkeley Philosophy Department and listen to how this brilliant, kind, articulate, gracious man gave them the good news about Jesus. And when you're done with that, it's going to recommend because the algorithm will say, oh, you're interested in that. Well, let me introduce you to John Lennox, who is an Oxford mathematician who speaks five languages, who is a C.S. Lewis scholar and a brilliant Christian. And listen to him as he debates, debates with Richard Dawkins and does the exact same thing. Kindness, dignity, intelligence brimming out of this 80-year-old man who is just amazing. And then Sean McDowell does the same thing. And let me tell you something. What I think they all have in common is this. They remember that their opponents have been ensnared and they are captives. If you forget that, think of that word picture, ensnared. You ever seen an animal that's been ensnared? You might have ensnared him. I don't know. I mean... Have you ever seen? I mean, it's kind of a pathetic thing, right? Do you know that these people are made in the image of God? And that they're captives who have been ensnared? I, I don't know if you have one dangerous friendship, but I want one. One that somebody in the church might look at me and go, why are you even friends with them? I mean, there's a guy, his name is Douglas Murray, and he's a brilliant political commentator. And he's just absolutely articulate, compassionate, forceful in his arguments. He seems kind. He happens to be a homosexual. So is Dave Rubin. And I think to myself, if I had the chance to go to lunch with them, I would love it. And I would love to become their friend. And I would love for someone at some point in my life to say to me, do you know what kind of person this is? And my answer would be, yes. And I long for them to be unensnared by the sin that has grabbed them and twisted their heart and mind because they are a captive who has been ensnared. And if I could be their friend, I would compromise nothing of the gospel and I would hope to become their friend and I would hope to tell them about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 14, I want you to hear this. Someday we're going to be able to look at the devil in heaven somehow. We'll look at him and listen to this. The devil, it describes his, his uh, fall. It says in Isaiah chapter 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And God says, but you have been brought down to Sheol into the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. And ponder over you, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a desert, who overthrew cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? That's what the devil does. And so when you see someone and you know that their sin is ensnaring them and you know that it's captured their mind and their heart and they're arguing out of that, before you just hate them, before you win the argument, remember they're made in the image of God. And maybe it's possible to compromise nothing of the person of Jesus and love that person patiently, kindly, 
kindly teaching them the truth about who He is. Oh, that they would say of us, why are you even friends with them? And I'll say, why is Jesus even friends with me? Why did you choose to love me? What were you thinking? I'm not lovable. I'm not patient. I'm not, I'm not that good. And yet you chose to love me. Why? And it's more than that. I didn't just choose to love you. I choose to die for you. Listen to what it says here. Maybe God will grant them repentance. Maybe God will lead them to the knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after having been captive to do His will. Oh, friends, may it be that we who say to God, I want to be your vessel. Fill me. Use me. I want to be used for any good work. It doesn't have to be one that anybody else sees, anybody else knows. I want to know that you have assigned me a task and I want to do it. I want to be a part of your gospel going forward in Georgetown. And if you would give me even one friendship that somebody might look at me like the twelve looked at Jesus when He was at the, the well in Samaria and He's there like, what is He doing talking to her? Or if He only knew the kind of woman who is touching His feet right now, He wouldn't let her. I want one friendship where somebody looks at me and says, why are you even doing this, Robert? This is a dirty person. God willing. Were we not once ensnared? Did we not need someone to love us? God was going to do it one way or another, but my gosh, Lord, You've planted us all around people who need the gospel. May we be a gospel vessel to be poured out to them. Father, we just want to say thank You for saving us. 